Hello, and welcome to DreadTube, the gothic socialist audio essay series that exists on uh, Pod Damn America, our podcast. Uh, for keen listeners, you might have caught a play on words there. That is a joke about BreadTube. BreadTube being a YouTube subculture that consists of uh, nerds who like to make videos about pop cultural things that they've consumed while talking robotically like this underneath the video or fast like this about how Rick and Morty is actually about alright and uh okay so we're all familiar with the premise now um (laughs) I will not be doing that because I think what's going on in the form of those videos at least is that those people are reading off of a script they wrote which is all fine and dandy however I'm a comedian I talk off the dome and have my information stored in my head, so this will sound a little bit more like our podcast, except there's only me today. Um, I decided to do this, though, because um, I played this video game recently, and it's rife with meaning, and I've been wanting to write something or put something out. I've been meaning to process this game. Um, and I figured this was a good format for it. So right up front, I feel like I should explain that I'm going to spoil the game, the plot. And if you haven't played the video game Disco Elysium, you might not want to listen to this. Um, you might, it doesn't really matter in my opinion. I don't think the game is incredibly spoilable in its plot because I don't think the plot is the point. We'll get into that. But, um, if you're somebody who feels that way. You probably should skip it. Um, That's also why I put this up on our Patreon as supplementary material. This is sort of an experiment. If this is a huge pain in the ass and people don't like this because they, you know, have not consumed the media, I don't know, tell us. And maybe we'll stop doing stuff like this. This is a back and forth, you know? Um, But I figured, well, here's an outlet I have. And I think there's some interesting things to say about this video. That being said... There are a lot of bread tube essays about Disco Elysium because it is, you know, it's involved in uh, our subculture. And it's, like I said, I think it's really meaningful. There's a lot going on in it. There are hours and hours and hours of takes about this video game because it's more than a video game. It's sort of a novel. And, and it'll be impossible for me to write something that will entirely encompass the 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 gravity of the the entire thing that's happening here. I think we're dealing with a work of art. And it's already been done. There are videos you can watch where people break down the specific dynamics, you know, dialectically regarding just the use of mirrors in the video game and the story and explain all these Yuzekian references and things like that. Um, there are some really great videos that uh, identify, you know, what I think you can understand to be very intentional references, allusions, and homages in the game. And there are also people who, you know, sort of jam artistically on this sort of stuff and project things that maybe are unintentional, but just appear in the form of things within the mind of the viewer, which, you know, that's how art works, right? So, uh, I think there's an infinite number of angles to come at this story about. I've simply chosen one or two things that spoke so, and ring out to where me, we need to be. I'll be explaining on. the premise, plot, um, and background of the video game Disco Elysium, as well as the form, I guess, 
which is really important here, because this is a video game, but it's also a novel. And I guess after having played through it, the way I would explain it to someone in a potential situation where I would be trying to pitch them that they should play it too is that it's the best novel I've ever played, the best video game I've ever read. I think it exists kind of singularly as the cross point between these two mediums. There have been role-playing games that breached something like this, and there have been pieces of like ergodic literature that are somewhat interactive, like House of Leaves or something like this. But this is almost like a 50-50 split. Um, you don't fight anyone in Disco Elysium. What actually happens is that you wake up as a character, unnamed, don't even know what your own face looks like, in a hotel room in a town called Revachal. And you sort of figure out that you're a cop and that you have amnesia. And the amnesia was self-induced from seemingly a pattern of drinking, drug use, and just general um, chaos and impulsiveness, self-destruction, right? And I went into the game not really knowing anything about it or not knowing that much about it. So this experience works really well in that it establishes um, a mystery, right? The mystery originally being who you are. And, and this creates an underlying metaphor throughout the game regarding the form of role-playing game and identity. Because role-playing games generally start off with a screen where you create a character and you spec you know, their strength and intelligence and so on and so forth, creating like an illusion of free will within the game. And then depending on how the game is designed, there's either a level of predestination or like uh, aspects of Disco Elysium, a degree to which you can sort of carve out a unique experience depending on how you build your character and how you carve their identity. The next thing that happens is that you meet a woman smoking in the hallway outside of your hotel room and you talk to her briefly, seemingly of no meaning, uh, to no great effect. You then are approached by a man named Lieutenant Kim Kitsuragi, who introduces himself as your partner and you discover sort of eventually that you are a cop with something called the Revel Revishal People's Militia, or rather Revishal Citizens Militia. Story comes together that you're an amnesiac cop, you sort of have a 70s disco thing going on, you're assigned to this town to solve a murder, there's a dead body hanging from a tree, um, Kim Kitsuragi is sort of your counterpoint, your foil, I guess. You have amnesia and you embody something that is thematic to hard-boiled detective stories. There's a bit of noir going on here. Not only can you not remember your past, it seems you might not be able to remember it because it is painful. Now, I want to stop for a moment and talk about the creator of this game and I think why he chose this specific trope. 
Disco Elysium was written by a guy named Robert Kurvitz, who is Estonian and is a novelist. And I think wrote a novel called Sacred and Terrible Air that maybe did not, I don't know, make his career in the way he thought it was going to or become well-received in that way or whatever. Um, I don't know firsthand uh, if this is 100% correct, but from what I've read about him, it seems like the story is that he was depressed and that he is a little bit like our main character himself and that he was blacking out his demons, you know, with drugs and alcohol. And that in the, the far back behind all of the, you know, these blurry demons, there was heartbreak and he perhaps experienced some sort of love loss which led him into a depression after writing his novel and was approached by a friend who pitched the idea of continuing a project of theirs, which was the original premise for Disco Elysium, which was not a video game. It was a tabletop game. So if you know anything about tabletop games, you know that that affected the form here, right? Because, you know, the most famous tabletop game of all time is probably Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons being the root for how all of the things that go into making role-playing games sort of exist. Um, I think that he had a pretty original idea here, which was to take, instead of medieval settings where you are a wizard or you are running around with a battle axe, um, he wanted to launch the genre into the 70s cop motif or genre or whatever the fuck it's called, right? Um, which is cool, but what's more innovative about how he or how the the team moved from there is what they did with the concept of skill checks. Because when you're playing a D and D type tabletop game, the entire sort of like function of the game, the thing that makes it a game, has to do with this thing where you roll dice. If you're not familiar, so if I'm playing a warrior and I'm playing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I get start off with a skill sheet that says uh, how many, you know, you have 10 points. Where do you want to allocate them? Do you want to put them all in your intelligence or your strength or your agility and so on and so forth? Different type characters have different core strengths that they start off with um, or core stats that uh, are, are a little bit higher. And you could choose to balance out your other ones from there or really lean into like your strength if you are a warrior and you want to be the person who's very strong or your intelligence if you want to be a wizard and be the person who's really smart and so on and so forth. Charisma, yada, 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 right? Well, Disco Elysium um, is a little bit different because I think the beginning of uh, the seed of what makes it unique existed in this tabletop game, which was that they imagined that this like mechanic could be applied to the inner world of your character. So Disco Elysium um, features this really complex specking system and it's central to how the game works because you're carving an identity out. So at any given point you pause and move to this menu where you don't just have, you know, four or five stats breaking down like intelligence stamina, agility, whatever, right? What you have are I 
are 24 different abstract concepts representing various parts of one's self broken down into four subcategories, intellect, psyche, physique, and motorics. So within something like intellect, you have your logic, your encyclopedic brain, your rhetoric, your drama, your conceptualization, your visual calculus. Within the psyche, which represents more of an empathic part of the human self, uh, you have things like your volition, your suggestion, your empathy, your, there's something called the Inland Empire that seems to be a metaphor for the soul. Something called esprit de corps, which is uh, relevant to your intuition as a police officer, right? Um, your authority. In your physique, you have endurance, your pain threshold, your physical instrument, electrochemistry, something called shivers, something called half-light. Some of these are very abstract concepts. Motorics, hand-eye coordination, perception, reaction speed, savoir-faire, interfacing, composure. So you see how these things are not entirely straightforward. They are embodiments of things that um, you know haven't really, up to this point, even been conceived of and put a name to. And the idea being that when you create a character at the beginning of the game, you create your version of this character... You decide whether you want to play them as an intellectual type or, you know, more of a brute force sort of type or an empath or someone who's maybe just really tactile. But within that, you even get to choose within those categories, you know, how you're going to what your specific like parts of yourself that are going to speak loudest to you will be me. I played the game for the first time. I didn't want to get too weird with it. And so I went with the first category, intellect, and specced a lot in encyclopedic knowledge so that I would you know, learn about the game while I was playing it. And also conceptualization, which is something I came to naturally because it spoke to me as a creative type, I think. And that will come back in the game. So I think the original premise is that in an, a, something like a murder investigation, you know, there is not what... Uh, what the creators have have uh, sort of described other video games form as, which is the uh, murder hobo, I think is the way they said it, where most games you're just running around killing people and taking their stuff. You know, the way that you would play through something like a murder mystery is by interrogating people, not so much even in like an aggressive sense, but just by like talking to people, going around a town and discovering things through conversation with people. So within conversations with various members of a community these different parts of yourselves form into ways in which you can empathize with intimidate intellectualize you know or straight up sneakily pickpocket or something like that information out of people and things like that so what's interesting about this game is that it all exists within sort of the mind of the main character. And when you're talking to someone, they can't hear this, but all of your different parts of yourself, your skills that you spec'd will talk to you. They'll suggest that you say certain things to these people because the, the entire form of the game is uh, dialogue trees, which if you've ever played like a dating simulator or something like that, it's very similar. Um, all of the outcomes that are possible in this game happen through making decisions in conversations with people. So it's very important that you make certain decisions if you want certain outcomes, which is why your encyclopedic knowledge or your conceptualization or your endurance or your hand-eye coordination will speak to you while you're talking to 
whoever, a shop owner, a truck driver, someone on the street. Um, sometimes, you know, if you expect in something like electrochemistry, uh, which is the, the skill that is most, in, uh, connected to like, um, what do you call it? Drug tolerance and stuff like that. Your character will notice that the person you're talking to is exhibiting, you know, withdrawal or something like that, which means that they have some sort of futuristic cyber drug that you can convince them to share with you or, you know, steal or arrest them for having or whatever, depending on how you've tried to play this character. It's really cool, and it means that there are probably an infinite number of replayable experiences you can get out of a game like this, which is a lot of fun. However, what's most interesting to me about it and what grabbed me the most might be pure happenstance, or it might be, I don't know, I'm going to say unintentional on the author's part, but still true. I think me and the author both arrived at a certain point, not because it was deliberate and that this person had been thinking specifically about things in the way that I was, but that we were both searching for a form of truth that is undeniably shaped the same way. Here's what I mean. I want to talk about trauma, which I think is, oddly enough, um, treated rather cynically within the world of uh, online vulgar materialists and uh, dirtbag leftists and so on and so forth, which is, you know, part of this. Um, I don't think that it's prudent to throw the scientific baby out with the bathwater when we talk about this trauma is one of those things that is weaponized by liberals sure but that doesn't mean that it is not a real thing in fact for a community of people who spend all of their time online giving themselves a form of psychic brain damage that is only deniable and that it is not physical and you cannot actually see the scars you impose on your central nervous system i don't think we have a foot to stand on in arguing you know that this doesn't exist I think this is something that is going to require deep introspection in the future because, you know, almost thematic to this story, this is not endurable. This cannot hold. <laughs> the way a lot of us are living is not tenable. So I played this game while I was reading this book simultaneously called The Body Keeps the Score, which if you spent a lot of time on Twitter, you might have uh, seen memed a bit. You might see some of the more humorless self-care type uh, liberal, you know, Twitter personalities referencing it, blogging about it and stuff like that. Um, but I became curious about it because uh, I have an interest in actually what it's about through i don't know my past and what i studied in college and also you know my personal journey to uh understand the thing that we're all living through and also um through experiencing my own fucking trauma and going to therapy and you know actually looking at that and figuring out what it is and stuff like that i get the character in this game I understand where they're coming from a little bit too well. In fact, I almost found the game a little bit embarrassing or cringy at times because I wondered, I don't know if it was making fun of me or something. <laughs> the guy who made this, you know, knows who we all are and uh, decided to, you know, to say things with the characters in these games and have them embody types of peoples and things like that. And I felt a little bit too 
close and too empathetic with this character who's drunk and in pain and purposely self-medicating and blacking out because of something that's haunting his past. Let's start with The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score was written by a man named Bessel van der Kolk um, from some crazy country over there in Europe. Um, It's a study in post-traumatic stress disorder or something maybe even larger than that that is unnamed, really, because it's such a vast concept that permeates throughout the scientific research in the book. At first, I was skeptical when I read this book because, uh, frankly, I thought it was going to be lib shit um, because libs tend to specify things like trauma and use them to obfuscate and use them as placeholders and use them, you know, all sorts of irresponsible ways and tell you that you uh, are only, you know, you don't like Kamala Harris because of your whatever you you have trauma, you know, we all know the things we've all been on the internet. We all hate these people, right? The book, however, grabbed me in its confrontation with psychopharmacology, something that, um, I am skeptical of not outright dismissive of, but in really specific ways that we've talked about on this podcast, I feel like is being used to serve an end that is not ultimately wellness. It is just reifying of the sort of mode of production that we live in. Mark Fisher talks about this. We've talked about it. In The Body Keeps the Score, Besser Vanderkolk discovers that there is actually um, telling and fruitful research on the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder, which used to be called shell shock, that goes way back you know, before World War II, before the American healthcare system neoliberalized and changed to a degree. And in the 80s, you had a situation where basically what happened was psychology was seen as a soft science. It wasn't taken as seriously. It wasn't given as much funding and treated legitimately as legitimately as, you know, other medical sciences. But around the time that the advent of psychopharmacology occurred, the, uh, the pill, you know, the psychiatric diagnosis, um, there was a resurgence in interest in funding and a somewhat legitimization of the field of psychology and its evil sister, the field of psychiatry. I'm just kidding, but you know what I mean? When this happened, uh, people began to see psychological disorders as diseases with cures. And you got a lot of Zoloft commercials where there was a little white blobby guy walking around feeling bad. And then a pill that showed up that made him feel not bad and made the cloud over him that was following him and raining on him go away. And it sent a very specific message to people, which is that through the magic of the scientific method, we had discovered Uh, cures for these natural chemical imbalances that actually are just, you know, part of life that maybe you have and there's nothing wrong with you for having. And so you should buy this pill and it'll make everything go away, right? But the problem is if you actually look into, you know, the, the field of research here, most people don't report that anything is actually solved when they take, um, antidepressants and things like that it's just that it makes the feeling go away by numbing it down a little bit which is fine but it isn't really that much different than 
drinking like our main character here in the story and drugging and using whatever manner of substance you need to, you know, to numb the pain. Vanderkolk discovered, I don't think in as finite material terms as us leftists would like to, uh, you know, see it put, but he discovered something that's true, I think, which is that the market incentive incentives of eighties and nineties psychiatry undermined research into the very nature of the wounding of the human soul in that it, you know, it, it found that the pill thing was it fit better into the mode of production. It fit better into capitalism. So you had a sort of lost art of examining and discovering the soul in a way that uh, the, that might never be returned to. I think Vanderkolk discovered what's referred to by Mark Fisher as a lost future here, a potentiality, a different historical timeline that could have happened and maybe that we feel echoing because we yearn it to happen and because and that some, it's something that can guide us further in the future towards you know something better. The Body Keeps the Score moves through a series of case studies regarding people who have become traumatized in deeply within their central nervous system by war, by botched surgery, by all sorts of horrible things, and don't find the ultimate solution to that in the sort of uh, you know market-oriented uh, and advertised you know fix of psychiatric band-aid solutions. They move through a number of, you know, possible ways of getting around this problem, like exposure therapy and things like that. And a lot of those things don't work either, but eventually you do read stories of these case studies where they, you know, they come to find that something bizarre like EMDR works, which is a hard to describe, but it's almost akin to hypnosis. Things like chanting and dancing and things like that, that I, you know, get back to the root of what your body has evolved to do and are found more common in countries that aren't so devastated by modernity um, seem to work for these people. And I'm a skeptic. Stuff like that sounds crazy to me, um, you know, but results are results. I was a obnoxious young atheist when I was a teenager and I don't I don't take really easily on to any of this sort of thought um, but personally I don't know I've learned to meditate in the last year or so and it's real it is actually a thing that works you know so I don't know and that's the important part of the story is the I don't know um, the future is you know rife with possibilities but none of what's going on at Disco Elysium is particularly prescriptive in a specific way one solution, though, that is explored in The Body Keeps the Score struck me while I was reading the book and playing this game. There is a therapist in this book that conceives of the self as a community of smaller parts that work in sort of harmony with each other when a person is a healthy person. A number of PTSD patients found that when they came to this therapist and they approached their inner world as a community of disjointed pieces that embody different sides and parts and aspects of themselves, 
they were able to commune with these pieces and discover that what occurred during trauma was that when your inner core was attacked, a part of yourself would be deemed the protector of the core. That part became hardened, overactive, uh, very defiant, like a watchdog that when it senses danger, barks loudly. And PTSD sort of can be imagined as a situation where that dog is barking, that part of yourself, because it served a purpose at one point. It protected the inner core from being destroyed, but that part does not exist in spaces and time. And that part does not understand that the threat is gone and that it no longer needs to bark and to run around and to bite things and to keep people away from you. A very ambitious interpretation of what is being talked about in The Body Keeps the Score is that this is the basis of PTSD and it's the underlying basis of eventual outcomes that are then diagnosed as other disorders like depression or bipolar or you know so on and so forth and that it's possible that what is being sort of understood here is simply the basis for all psychic wounding. You see this embodied with people when they have personality traits that they sort of lean on to give them a sense of security, you know, their intellect, their sense of humor, their attractiveness, their whatever. When that thing becomes challenged, the entire system is threatened. There's, you know, an alarm bell that goes off, like in a nuclear reactor, the person goes into crisis mode. I think myself, I sort of started to understand that something involving intelligence and creativity served to protect part of my, my soul in this way. And then I realized that those are the skills that I specced in the game. Um, I am the type of person who gets mad on Twitter sometimes when someone insinuates that I, you know, I'm dumb or something or that a, a take I had that... Uh, I thought was particularly creative is stupid. Even if I understand it to be stupid, <laughs> I think, you know, the point is that it was creative. Who cares? I thought it out using the model in the book, and I think it actually kind of works. I think that myself, personally, I probably relied on this part of myself because I was told I was young from a very young age, and I grew up, you know, rough in the school of hard knocks and the fucking sticks and got into a lot of fights and things like that, but the things that uh, helped me, you know, differentiate myself from the forces that were threatening my young, you know, soul were that I was special in some way and that I, you know, I was intelligent. I was in all those gifted and talented programs and yada, yada, yada. I don't know if this is true. This is just a model I used to understand the body keeps the score and the video game. And I think it kind of works. I don't mean mind being open about this sort of thing because it, reading about all this has caused me to understand that everyone has something like this. Uh, Twitter comes for us all. No one is safe. You might be the biggest bully in the room on the internet on a given day. A week later, you're going to be the person crying and saying, I can't believe people would be so mean online, you know. <laughs> everyone has like a speck. Everyone has a part of themselves that is uh, scared and can be threatened and can cause all hell to break loose if it's pushed far enough. Another interesting part of the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder that came to me in this book is that when someone experiences trauma, like a Vietnam veteran or something like that, 
the information that's perceived through the person's mind, which would normally be um, uh, consolidated through the part of your brain called the hippocampus that turns things into memories, would be restored narratively as a uh, a then 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 story you know a thing that goes first this happened then this happened then this happened but when trauma occurs one of the hallmarks of the disorder is that all of the experiences that overloaded your system become uh, disjointed on a timeline you'll notice this represented in films about you know veterans from war and stuff like that they experience flashes of images of people being dismembered and blown up and murdered and so on and so forth or the person that attacked you whatever happened right um when you experience this, this causes you to live in sort of a confused, cloudy state, a fugue state after the fact, putting the pieces together, you know, just sort of like spending all of your time reliving, feeling, and trying to put things into a narrative sense that'll make sense. Some PTSD victims find when they finally are able to, through some sort of, you know, meditation or guided hypnosis or whatever, put things into a narrative story it resolves the trauma and they don't obsess over it and it doesn't visit them over and over and over again. But what's interesting to me about that state of living in a vague haunted situation by disjointed memories is that is the, the noir trope. That is what's embodied in our main character here in disco Elysium, who is an amnesiac and feels pain, but doesn't remember why he feels it. Now, do I think that Kurvitz read The Body Keeps the Score? No, I don't think so. I think if he had, that he probably would have alluded to it specifically the way he alludes to other things that he read that enter into the story, or that appear in the story, rather. Um, I think what happened is that he experienced trauma. That's enough to have come to these conclusions because what's being understood in this book is true it's the fig they figured out some universal hallmarks of the experience and that's what's so interesting and i think what he's done with this story is process what's going on with his trauma in a way that's brilliant because it uses as a metaphor the story of history the story of all of mankind uh, the story of history that can be understood through the marxist dialectical historical materialist lens that we all know and love to explain that, let's get into the plot of Disco Elysium and the thematic underpinnings. Our protagonist discovers eventually that his name is Harry Dubois and that he is indeed a detective in the Revachal Citizens Militia who was assigned to solve a murder here in the town of Revachal. He also discovers what Revachal is, which um, serves, I think, as a pretty standard metaphor for, uh, you know, maybe for Paris, but also for the Estonia that Kurvitz is native to. Disco Elysium is very much about the malaise of the post-Soviet bloc. Revachal, as you discover, is the site of a previous, I think 50 years beforehand, attempted communist revolution. So the original story is that it was the site of, um, or rather, Revachal was the seat of a kingdom. There was a king, a monarch. Then there was a communist revolution 
driven by you know pretty standard stand-ins for communists throughout history. They're referred to communards. Their uh, you know their their source of wisdom is a philosopher named Krasmazov. He looks exactly like Karl Marx. Um, you know something very twentieth century happened, but tragically. The revolution came and went and was eventually crushed by the liberal forces of what's known as the moral intern. So there's a very profound centrist ideological faction in the world of Revachol or the town of Revachol, which exists, I guess, in the world, which is referred to as Elysium, I think. Um, so, yeah, the, the moralism is the name for the centrist liberal ideology in this game, and it's its basis is um, basically in what. So, who crushed the the communist revolution was this thing called the Coalition of Nations, a formal alliance of Occidental nations. That's like a, a continent, a formal alliance of Occidental nations originally formed to throttle the revolution. Does this sound familiar? Are you starting to understand what's going on with this person having grown up at a place like Estonia? Um, Estonia itself in our world was occupied, you know, back and forth by Germans and Russians and Soviet Russians under the Soviet Union and everyone else and only really became its modern, like liberalized form in the late 80s, I think. And, um, you know, if, if you read about it on Wikipedia, the, the Wikipedia articles are, you know, highly biased and spun and they very much antagonize the Soviet bloc. And, uh, you know, you... You probably shouldn't um, take that and then turn it inside out, though, either, and assume that everyone in Estonia loved the Soviet bloc. Um, you know, the, the answer is way more complicated. I, I'm not really going to get into it here because I am not prepared to. I don't have the, the reading, you know, under my belt to talk about this. But this is something that is at the very least controversial. I mean... The Soviet Union, when the various revolutions in Estonia were happening, dropped you know tanks in to crush the revolutions. However, these revolutions were you know probably uh, dubious and, and liberal, and you know who knows if there was Gladio and NATO and that sort of stuff involved. Uh, probably, um, but this is like literally where the term "tanky" comes from. So we're, I'm not going to get into it because there's probably great arguments to be made on either side of whether who should have won those things. Interestingly, uh, the the revolution that ultimately liberalized Estonia, if I remember correctly, is called the Singing Revolution, and it occurred because the uh, or it, the, the the reason it's called the Singing Revolution is because you know in order to stand out in the field for a number of days at a time, the people sang nationalist anthems with each other and oddly enough this is referenced in the body keeps the score i don't know what to make of that <laughs> i don't think that the guy who wrote the body keeps the score understands the complexities of european politics and uh or well i mean is european yeah he is european but i don't think he's a marxist so i don't think that he understands you know i think that he, he's towing the the party line and and antagonizing the soviet union in the situation and you know, doing what's happening right now with Ukraine and yada, yada, yada. Anyways, this is all to say that Revachal serves as a good stand-in for, um, you know, for Europe post-Soviet dissolution because things are still and poor and it's a wasteland and 
no one can really agree on whether it's because um, the co- the communist revolution attempted to make things better and thus made things worse, or whether the liberal forces that crushed the revolution ultimately doomed everyone into the situation of being impoverished to begin with, or if none of this should have happened and we should have just kept the king to begin with. Those are basically the factions you're dealing with. While you're figuring all of this out, you as Harry Dubois discover that there's been a murder, a man was hanged, the suspects are the local trade unionists who formed themselves into sort of like a people's militia, you know, not entirely different from your own, but on more of a local level, a community gang, basically. What's confusing is that when you interrogate the uh, the local union boys about whether they murdered the man hanging from the tree, they tell you that they did and that there's nothing you can do about it. Um, why did they confess to a murder, though? Interesting. Obviously, this is a murder mystery. There's more going on. So it's time for you to run around town and talk to everyone and figure out why this is happening. You meet people like Everard Clare, which is the local union boss who you sort of begin to understand is uh, very tricky in the way that he talks. He, you know, does believe in a form of social democracy, but he believes in, you know, trade unionism to the degree that it's helped him, which is interesting. This is um, something you might be thinking about if you read Lenin, you know, with us when we did what is to be done. You remember Lenin's critique of trade unionists and that they sort of eventually just sort of um, become absorbed into liberalism, right? Because the whole, the whole, the, the whole point he was making was that, you know, if you're a trade unionist and you don't actually go as far as to, you know, to challenge the, the system and to want to overthrow it, you eventually only become, you know, someone who compromises to the level of, uh, of supporting liberal politicians and stuff like that. I don't know. It's a huge paraphrasing. Go listen to our old episode that we did with Brett O'Shea about what is to be done. But Everard Clare, you discover is someone who is, you know, involved in some underhanded dealings and is himself trying to bring like a, uh, strip mall basically to Revish Hall. That doesn't sound like a communist, does it? Um, it's interesting, though. You know, he is someone who also seems to be playing both sides and wants to, uh, you know, to do things like put uh, workers on the board of uh, whatever the fuck runs the the company that he's working in and stuff like that. You also meet young delinquent riffraff kids. You break into a building and discover a metaphor for the game that you're playing itself and that there is a failed attempt at a very ambitious role-playing game that seeks to i don't know explain something about the universe uh someone connected to making the game you find later on in a church out in the uh fucking quasi-siberian iceberg part of the the map um this person has identified some sort of radio frequency that looks to be a hole in the universe and i introduces you to Um, an interpretation of something else that exists in the game that is important. Actually, you discover this both through the game designer character and through this uh, liberal lady named Joyce Messier, who actually, ironically, for being a liberal, is very nice to you because, you know, she actually comes from the position of liberals in real life. I think this game, you know, needs to... It deals very analytically and critically and 
and fairly with all of the ideologies, it is an underlyingly communist video game. I think the the characters, uh, or the the creators of the game, thanked Karl Marx when they won an award for this video game, and uh, you know made it apparent that there's like a an overt sort of point of view. Um, but they're smart and they're good Marxists, and that they don't. Uh, create wooden stand-in characters for enemies. Joyce Messier, who stands on a boat the entire time you're talking to her, is um, you know someone who who is nice to you because she's what's referred to in the game as an ultra-liberal, someone who betrayed the communist revolution and eventually came to work for Wild Pines, the company that the local union boys you know work uh, well against as unionists. Um, but also work for, um, and so, you know, she notices that you're an amnesiac and she decides to explain, uh, anything you want to know about reality. And one thing that she explains is as the game, you know, exists on a small map, you might've noticed this fog around the map. This looks like the normal fog that you see in any video game. That means you just have not explored an area or conveniently we as game designers just don't want you to think about the space outside of the the map that you're playing on, right? Well, in the game, the characters actually refer to the fog as the pale. Um, it's a real thing. No one understands it. It's the uh, it's the the I don't know. It's the the confusing dreamlike space that separates things that are happening from things that are unknowable. Technology exists in the game to you know to 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 send mail and like radio signals through the pale. They say, if you get lost into it, you'll just disappear. It's dangerous. It, uh, seems to be encroaching more and more onto the continents that humans live on. The character Kim Kitsuragi literally drives through it and wakes you, you know, uh, it's highly, highly philosophical. It's highly metaphorical. And, you know, one interpretation of the pale is that it's um, it's about um, climate change because the liberal Joyce Messier doesn't seem to care uh, about the fact that the pale is coming to take us. It seems actually that it's part of her agenda or that she's rather just cynical about it and it's reality. Um, the uh, the game designer character, though, that you meet in the church is more interested in what exactly it is because it seems, you know, to be a doomsday clock that hangs over everything. And what's interesting about it is I think that it serves as a metaphor for capitalist realism, because if you've read Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, you know, the, the, the basic premise of, of that, uh, book of the series of essays that he's getting across there is that we sort of lived in a world that was modern in the sense that there was a you know an ideological fight between communism and capitalism capitalism won out so then we lived in a world that was postmodern that was ideologically something where you understood the war to be over um and had to grapple with the new reality that there was like a hegemony and then capitalist realism is something that Mark Fisher writes after the 2008 financial crisis, right? And the lesson of the 2008 financial crisis was that there's no game in town except for capitalism, right? 
there is no alternative, according to Margaret Thatcher. According to Frederick Jameson, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. They bailed out the banks after the banks, you know, committed a crime against us, a massive crime. What does that mean? Well, it means as opposed to postmodernism, in which we see communism and go, it's unavailable, um, it'll never happen. In capitalist realism, we exist in a Lacanian framework. And what Lacan talked about was how there's reality versus the real. Reality being the thing we experience and the real being something outside of it that your brain actually has like a parameter of perception where it can't understand. So capitalist realism is about ca communism living into the real, living in the fog outside of what we're able to even understand. Capitalist realism, as opposed to postmodernism, isn't about communism being not possible. It's about you going, what's communism? I've never even heard of that. We live so far in the future that that's not even a thing, right? There is only the world that we live in. The pale seems to be a source of amnesia for everyone in Revishal. Everyone is, uh, you know, confused by it. When they walk into it, it disorients them. They kind of can't understand. Liberals are fine with it. Um, but you've got these other characters who think, you know, perhaps the answer to what's going on exists out in the pale. This serves as a metaphor for the fact that communism is dormant in the world of Revishal. There are maybe two or three characters in the game that actually are living, breathing communists. Um, you, as a character, get to, you know, do this RPG thing where you spec a certain way. If you want, you can play the game as a fascist. You can play the game as a liberal. You can play the game as a complete weirdo. Um, you know, but more often than not, people who play this game tend to, I think, be or at least make these videos and stuff, tend to follow the path that the story seems to hint at, which is that you should become a communist. But what's so funny about that is that you're a cop, your partner looks at you, gives you the side eye a lot about it, and you eventually realize that there aren't a lot of other communists in this world. What's great about Disco Elysium is that it tells you if you break yourself, if you become an amnesiac and you look at the world for what it is, as if born anew one day as a fully grown person, communism is the conclusion that makes the most sense. Everyone else around you is completely fucked out of that because they're indoctrinated by the history and the dynamic forces that, you know, that work on you, that make you into a cynic, a liberal, or an angry fascist or something like that. What's funny about Harry Dubois, though, is that if you do become a communist in the game, you can find, like, a, a meeting. There's a meeting, you know, and you get excited and you go, I'm going to go to this communist meeting where these weirdos are hanging out in this apartment complex. And you show up and it's literally two people, right? So kind of like real life. It's three guys. They're podcasters. They're making a, car, uh, a, a, tower, a tower out of uh, playing cards. Um, you hang out. You get drunk. That's it. That's the whole evening, right? Well, let's get back to this game designer. So you find her in this church out in the sticks, and she's using radio computers and stuff that you don't understand because you're not smart, and she has <laughs> tracked down that there is a source of the pale, she thinks, which is within this church a point on the floor that you can stand in that creates a profound silence. And it's no... It's no coincidence that it's in a church i think um interestingly this church if you play the game a certain way is also home to a bunch of kids whose goal is to make music so they seem kind of diametrically at odds 
with what's happening in the church, honestly. Not so much the researcher, but the church itself, which seems to be a house for silence. Um, you find these kids making crystal meth in a tent outside the church, trying to get into it. And if you play the game a certain way, you know, they eventually make it in and their goal isn't to be drug dealers. It's to make music. It's just to vibe. Um, I don't know the way I played it. I got them to quit doing drugs and make music and they seem pretty happy. But what's interesting about them is that they represent the youth. Um, they represent like hope for the future, I think. Here's where things get very metaphorically complicated. I'm going to do my best to walk through this, but I am an idiot, so I don't know if this will make a whole lot of sense. The church in the game is not a church of Christ. It's not a Christian church. Obviously, everything within the video game is a uh, an alternate reality. It's a representation of stuff like that within this alternate framework. So, in the religion that... Uh, I think moralists and conservatives probably both uh, venerate in a specific way. <sighs> there are like saints. It's kind of like Catholicism. There are these people called innocents, but they're real people. They're almost like popes, rather, that have lived, but there's legends about them that are, you know, say that they're supernatural. So don't have time to go through all of them, and the game doesn't really either. Mainly you focus on this one called Dolores Day. Dolores Day is famous for having discovered the continent that Revachal is on, or the island, or whatever the fuck. Um, she, you know, she led people through the, uh, the, 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 what do you call it, the pale, um, and into, you know, this world, which ironically was, you know, an act of colonization. There are indigenous people that were on the island. So, just like real life, right? But now you've got this church, and... What's going on is there's a giant, massive stained glass window of Dolores Day. She's kind of like a Mother Teresa type figure. Dolores Day represents a few things, I think, philosophically in Disco Elysium. When you go and you stand in the center of the church and you experience silence, um, someone asks you a question and they say, what does it sound like? And your character says, it sounds like less than less than nothing. This is a direct reference to Slavoj Žižek. Um, Žižek wrote a book called less than nothing subtitle Hegel and the shadow of dialectical materialism in it. He, and this is going straight off the verso books. Uh, what do you call it? Description, but it's well done. Uh, Žižek argues it is imperative. We simply not, uh, we not simply return to Hegel, but that we repeat and exceed his triumphs, overcoming his limitations by being even more Hegelian than the master himself. I think this is a very telling reference, and I think it's very deliberate. So what's going on here is Zizek, who's a big Lacan head, is talking about the lack and how there's this tendency in or how there's this experience where you exist in the in the real right in the pale when you're in like the womb and then as soon as you're launched into the world you constantly exist in a state of lack and you kind of need to fill this lack with something and that just motivates this that and the other i am not equipped to really explain this i lacan is a lot <laughs> um but i do I think I understand this because I think that I came to this similar conclusion on my own um, and probably have a much dumber way of saying it, but I just think a lot about how what's just what's being described here. This lack is um, I guess my model for looking at it is that historically 
the you know the what's referred to here as the empty signifier the the one signifier that's missing the thing that makes a human different from an animal is that we constantly have one thing missing and that we need to to fill this space with something was filled in uh you know in time in parts of history leading up to honest dialectical historical framework at least if you're looking at it this way um, was filled by religion, right? It was filled by these characters like Dolores Day. And what's interesting about about these kids making uh, like a form of techno music in the church where this is happening, just as a coincidence, is that they're reflecting another one of Mark Fisher's ideas besides the pale, which is uh, th- something that he talks about a lot in uh, the hauntology book that we talked about on our show which is that music explains hauntology. Like if you observe it or it illustrates it in the sense that there was a timeline in which people kept making new music right up until, you know, the, the electronic music revolutions of the nineties. And then as neoliberalism manifested in the nineties, so did a form of making music that you know only ever looks backwards it only ever sort of seeks to recapture previous sounds and things like that the uh, the drive to make new art is gone and for whatever reason it's like it, it, the the newness the, the the path forward is buried within the the pale the real the capitalist realism but disco elysium is not a hopeless game you see in these young kids you know, their heads are not full of Lacan. They're not looking at things, you know, with the vocabulary and, and, and language for describing all this. They're following a fucking vibe, right? And they're just making music and they're intentionally telling you that they are trying to make something that sounds new. It might be based on other artists. It might use them as, uh, you know, jumping off points. It might stand on their shoulders in a sense, but they seem like invigorated with the idea that they're going to make a thing that is going to make, it's going to blow people's fucking minds. And that's, so they just keep screaming the words hardcore and stuff like that. And if you play the game a certain way, you can help them make that sound. And it leaves them in a state of ecstasy where they seem to have like done the impossible and rediscovered the path forward artistically that once lied dormant. This serves as a metaphor for your quest to find communism. I think that it also serves as an illustration of what you can do with the lack that used to be filled with religion and used to be filled by characters in Revachal with people like Dolores Day, the living, breathing saint that they venerate and think, you know, is the source of all good in the world because she colonized the continent that they live on. Art is secular religion. It's a better version of it, right? And it works hand in hand with maybe the quest to fill the lack with something even greater, which is cooperation, a form of utopia or to use a synonym for utopia, Elysium, right? Let's talk about that. The name Disco Elysium, I think is a play on the term Disco Inferno, which is interesting because an inferno refers to hell. 
and uh, you know, damnation. Whereas Elysium is a term from Greek mythology that refers to you know a form of heaven where everything is you know sort of the promised land. I think disco very much represents you know Miss Fisher's lost future. Um, disco was <laughs> such a such a like a positive joyous thing that happened in our world that seemed like it was going to last forever and then went out like a fire snuffed out maybe one of the first rumblings of fisher's eventual description of music stopping to innovate at all ever Incidentally, this happened in the 70s, a pivotal decade in which the the inklings of neoliberalism began to make themselves apparent while the post-World War II sort of, uh, you know, hegemony of the United States being world police and everything starts to crack and the labor unions start to be defunded and stuff like that. And, the, you know, er, fucking Allende and everything happens. But rather than tell us that the 1970s happened, the turn towards neoliberalism happened, and the world is an inferno, the game is hopeful. And it tells us that there's you know, a path towards Elysium, even if we don't know what it is yet. Spoiler alert again, here's how the game ends. So after you discover all of the various things throughout the town, uh, do as many side quests as you like to take part in. I haven't talked about a lot of them. There's a lot. Um, but eventually there's a, a main story that locks back into place, which is that you go back to the town square, you realize uh, that the character who was hanged was a fascist. He was like a Blackwater paramilitary guy. And there's this guy that's been walking around who's been um, yelling right to work, and he's been hired as a scab to try to crush the union effort. This guy turns out to be brothers with the guy who was murdered. He showed up with an ulterior motive, ulterior motive, and he's also a fascist. They both were in the same paramilitary group together, I think. He decides he wants to avenge his brother's death by killing the trade unionists who, uh, you know, everyone thinks killed the fascist because they say they did, right? You, as the cop, show up and say, um, among other things, that you're a cop, which are also a communist, which is really weird. <laughs> um, and you say, I think I figured out who killed them, and it wasn't them, because this is just part of the plot at this point. I don't have time to explain all this. But then you get into a fucking Mexican standoff with these people. You uh, you know, you try to mediate. The trade unionists don't really um, trust you entirely, but no matter how you play the game, there's an outcome where basically what happens is you shoot the fascist, a bunch of people die, depending on, you know, how you do your skill checks and things like that. Uh, you might get really hurt. Your partner might get really hurt. Um, but eventually there's an aftermath. The aftermath is that the unionists now trust you. And because they trust you, they let you in a little bit more on what actually happened regarding the hanging, which is that the smoking woman from the beginning of the game, uh, was, in love with or not in love with, but like having a, a tryst with the fascist who then uh, was shot in the back of the head at some point. No one really knows what happened from there. They're just covering for their friend. From there, you investigate a few other possible angles and this all eventually leads you uh, through doing forensics and stuff like that to take a boat out to this little island where the shot could have possibly been fired like via a sniper killed this guy and it is your job as a cop you know to solve the murder right 
So you take a little dinghy out to this island with Kim Kitsuragi and something really, a number of really kind of crazy things happen in a row that culminate in the end of the game. Uh, the first thing is that you discover the killer and the killer essentially is, um, an old communard. He's someone who never left the communist revolution. He still exists in it. Um, he refers to himself as like a, a, a soldier of historical materialism. Even if you try to talk to him like a fellow communist, he calls you a fucking liberal. It's pretty good uh but he's also completely insane completely dislocated mentally he um you know believes in the 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 effort still but he's stuck in the 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 past the revolutionary version of trying to bring about communism and he ultimately kind of seems to have just murdered the nazi because you know a he hates nazis but b he's kind of a misogynist like him the, the communist and he uh you know developed a weird incel relationship with uh like a parasocial relationship you might say with uh Clossier, the smoking woman Right as you're in the middle of interrogating him and seemingly solving the mystery, something happens, which is that earlier in the game, you might have done a side quest where you tagged along with some cryptozoologists who were hunting this thing called the Phasmid. It seems fake the entire game. They seem insane. A lot of the people in Revishal are insane. And this stick monster that they're talking about that exists in between like perceptible human dimensions is sort of impossible to photograph or whatever or to capture. So it seems like a perfect conspiracy theory, right? Well, the phasmid appears while you're interrogating the communard and and it does indeed speak to you, and it speaks to you as a being that exists outside of the dimensions that uh, humans perceive time and reality in. It doesn't appear to be subject to the lack, the experience that is specific to human consciousness. It tells you that it's existed longer than humanity, that it sees you as uh, angry little apes, <laughs> you know, which is the way that your your consciousness talks to you throughout the game whenever you black out and you exist you know, outside of reality. Um, and it tells you that it's fascinated by you. It also informs you that the pale only existed or it only came into existence with humans. So with human consciousness, you know, both as a byproduct of that, we have this material distortion known as climate change, but we also have this ideological distortion, which drives things like climate change and drives the end of the world. The Phasmid sees you on a historical timeline. It sees you like um, a character from the fourth dimension, like Slaughterhouse-Five or something like that. It hopes that this ends well. It does not know whether it will, you know? And you just have a rather bizarre, mystical conversation with it, and then it leaves. And then you arrest the killer. And then you go back to the mainland and you're confronted by the rest of your uh, police uh, crew or whatever the fuck, whatever it's called. Team of police? I don't know. Um, <laughs> they interrogate you. The game resolves itself as the identity that you have constructed of Harry Dubois is audited. And it is, you know... It's confronted with the pre-trauma uh, Harry, the, the pre-amnesia Harry, 
What's beautiful here is that your partner, Kim Kitsuragi, who I haven't talked about much, you know, remained skeptical of you throughout a lot of the game. A lot of the game sort of um, has this feeling of guilt, like you're disappointing your friend who's a by-the-book cop by dancing and drinking and doing drugs and being completely insane, which are the only ways to really solve the murder. Kim defends you, and... I mean, depending on how you play the game, I think there's different outcomes here, but I think this is the intended ending of the game, like not the joke ending or whatever. Um, maybe there isn't one. Um, but he defends you, and he tells these people who are basically coming to fire you that you solved the murder and that you've built yourself into you know a confusing person, a, a new person who is contradictory in so many ways, but but deserves to be uh, forgiven and even understood to have, you know, uh, like endearing qualities and stuff like that. And um, is, is just valid, you know? And then you all drive off in a motor carriage. And this ending is confusing. A lot of people didn't like it. It's kind of a non-ending. And I think that's actually intentional. And I think in order to understand why the ending is such a non-ending, we have to go back to something that I skipped. I skipped it because it's my final point, and also because you could have played the game and entirely missed this, because this does look through, I think, our eyeballs as merely a part of the story. But it's important. So what is the source of Harry's trauma, right? He had his heart broken. He he sometimes confronts the memory of his ex-wife uh, or lover. I'm not sure specifically. I'm going on detective tropes here, so I'm going with ex-wife, I guess. There are points in the game where you can do things like pick up a gum wrapper and smell an aroma of apricot chewing gum that reminds you of this person, and you literally die and lose the game. If you pick up payphones throughout the video game, you might find yourself, you know, using um, your muscle memory to dial a phone number, calling a person your conscious amnesiac brain can't actually comprehend who it is. But guess who it is? It's your ex-lover. She is terrified of you. She doesn't want to see you. You can't actually process what's happening other than probably having some sort of gut feeling as Harry Dubois that things are gone wrong. This is what post-traumatic stress disorder looks like. It's, um, you know, something that will happen to me as someone who I think has it is like, I'll be at a funeral. I will feel my eyes tearing up. My conscious mind is like fine. It's making jokes. It doesn't understand what's happening. It's because... If something attacks your core, your soul on that level and fuck threatens the entire community of things that are you as a being, you block it out. You discontextualize everything. You experience it still, but your conscious mind does not process it. I think this is apparent when Harry Dubois is able to call his ex-lover on the phone without even understanding why he knows the phone number. He's doing like automatic writing, subconscious divination. Now, this story, you know, of a detective who has a jilted uh, ex-lover, a, a checkered past, it's a tale as old as time, but it usually ends one of a few different ways, given the genres that market you know, forces have sort of forced creatively into the stories that we tell. 
maybe he gets back together with her. Maybe he doesn't. And he's forced to, you know, just sort of like look at this cynically. Whatever happens, there is some form of closure. Something ends. Stories generally end, which is what I think everyone was expecting from this game. Why wouldn't you? Every other game you've ever played basically has an ending. This kind of didn't. Well, let's talk about another thing that happened on the island right before the end of the game. If uh, you play the game, I I think this happens no matter what you do. I'm not entirely sure, but... While you're staking out the final conversation, the final interrogation, you're in an old abandoned building and there's a cot you can lie down on. And if you lie down on it, Harry falls asleep and he has a dream. And in the dream, you know, you play it like a video game. You walk out across the water like Christ. You get to the other end of the water, the shore on the island. And there, standing there, is... Like a dream, you know, like Freud tells us, things um, sort of uh, uh, mash together in dreams. Standing there is a figure who is at once both your ex-wife and Dolores Day. This part of the game is confusing because you do have a dialogue tree with her. You can talk to her and you can't really get anywhere with her no matter how many times you exhaust all of the possible things you can say to her. All of your parts come uh, into the conversation they argue with each other about how to best solve this extremely pivotal extremely important problem right this is the central problem in harry's psyche is that this person is gone it's a dream it becomes surreal it becomes self-referential you kind of aware you're dreaming at one point um your inner monologue says something that it hasn't ever said which is why don't you just go through all of the dialogue trees which is you become kind of self-aware that you've been allowed to do that the whole time and it's not a design flaw it's fucking crazy right eventually and this is this is a moment that uses the form of video game in a way i don't think anyone's ever done anything like this before you're forced to leave you cannot finish this conversation in a way that makes this person come with you It feels like heartbreak. It feels like acceptance. It feels like the last moment, you know, when you leave someone's apartment that you used to live with, when you look back and realize you'll never see the inside of that apartment again. What's important here is... What's important here is to understand why she appeared in the form of Dolores Day. A saint a great person of history. I think what's important to understand about this is that what's hanging over this entire story is the lens of dialectical historical materialism and not just the old-timey Marxist lens, but what Zizek has done with it here in what he's saying in Less Than Nothing, Hegel in the Shadow of Dialectical Materialism. I guess what Zizek is arguing, if I understand, is that the future is open. It's unknowable. Um, we are not at the end of history, right? We are not at Francis Fukuyama's fucking history is over thing. We are in a situation where there's a tendency among communists, even, to look back at the revolution and go, it didn't work. So we need to do it again in a pretty much the same way. And 
you see that embodied like by characters like the communard who is i mean literally like burnt his soul out he's driven into a you know an existence that doesn't actually compute with the reality around him by living on an island and pretending that it's still 30 or 50 years ago i can't remember in the game but if you understand like Marx and Lenin writing about the Paris Commune, um, which I think Revachol, you know, m- might serve as a stand-in for in the game. You understand that the point is to um, build on the shoulders of failures like that, and not simply to redo and you know take a better crack at. Um, it's to synthesize harder and and with with you know the source of Harry's trauma, his ex-wife appearing as Dolores Day. The lesson here is that I think when you're, when you're going through something like this, you tend to experience the person that is gone as, you know, something that things would, things would feel better. Things would feel harmonious and that you would experience love, which is a microcosm of, you know, utopia itself. The, the ultimate form of love is everyone, you know, universal. We're all in heaven or whatever. Um, your soul wants to get that back. And it's, 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 it's engaging in great man theory on a, a micro level. It's saying, you know, that that person, uh, was the thing that made us feel that way. I say us, because I am a community of various weird fucking parts of myself now that I understand this. Um, and, and the lesson here, if the metaphor has worked correctly, I think is that, you know, when you, when your heart is broken, what you have to understand is that what you were doing incorrectly was, you know, thinking of a person as a part of the equation that was incomplete and that some, something like a figure of authority that you need to, to define you. Right. And actually what you need to do here is, you know, build your ability to love the same way we build our ability to, um, you know, to, to fight for the future, which is on the shoulders of these previous false iterations. I mean, we don't actually know what the future of, you know, resynthesizing and trying to achieve the thing that communism itself is only a stand in for, which is just, Elysium, just utopia, just the end of all of this, the state that gets us out of the current contradictions, right? Um, We don't know what that looks like on a macro level. We also don't know what that looks like on a micro level when like we're heartbroken. And, you know, the, the answer, um, I, I, I don't know. And I think that's, what's good about this story is that it ends with a, I don't know. It doesn't end like a Western story where, there's a happily ever after and Harry gets back together or he gets a new lover or something. And then there's kids and a nuclear family. I mean, we're at a fucking part of history where that might not even be what you want, you know, and no one knows. The point is that it's open-ended. This is embodied in something that happens directly after the shootout. Um, you wake up the next day, you come out to where blood was spilled in the center of town between you the trade unionists and the fascists. There's a character who you may have missed, who is only a detail in this story that I think is very important. Her name's Cindy the Skull, and she's like a teenage uh, street urchin who 
makes graffiti. She's an artist. You kind of discover that she lives in squalor and that she's addicted to drugs and things like that. But she's very precocious and very smart and doesn't trust you as a police officer. Um, this tells you some things, right? This tells you that she's, she like the kids making hardcore music is, um, is, is she more than the beaten down cynical, you know, people of Revachal who are a little bit older are, um, she's, she's part of this, this youth that's ignored, you know, <laughs> because they, they are just doomed people, but, they actually serve as like the fl- the the flower growing through the crack in the concrete, and that you have this dormant dream of making the world work that for the most part is gone. But these people are coming to it in their various ways, either through making music and just going, "What the fuck is this? Why do I feel so connected to other people while this is happening?" Or, you know, she seems like um, I don't know. I mean, there's been theories about her that she's like actually a communist, like she's well read or whatever, because she knows that you're a cop and she says, fuck you. And it's funny, like you can actually pass a check with her where she lets you, um, where she gives you paint and then you go paint a mural and it says, fuck the cops. And then Kim Kitsuraki goes, we're the cops. And then you go, yeah, fuck us. <laughs> you know, um, it's really funny, but I like this character a lot because when, if you've been paying attention, she's been mixing, uh, you know, this sort of like red fuel and using it as paint. And after the shootout happens in the town square between you and the, the fascists and the trade unionists, blood is shed and, you know, a contradiction is resolved and the wheels of history are moving once again. And you wake up the next day and you go back into the town square and it's very heavily implied that she did this. There's a mural or, I mean, it's words. There's like lettering painted on the ground where the blood was spilled. It's mixed with blood. It's the red fuel and the blood. And it spells out a phrase in French that I don't know how to pronounce, but when translated to English says, someday I will return to your side. I can't stop thinking about this phrase. I think this is the climax of the story, actually, at least the theoretical story. Why is it in French? French doesn't even really exist in this story. I think it's a, it's a reference to the Paris commune. I think the reason it's spoken from a point of view in the first person, I'm still kind of chewing on it. I'm like, why, why is it? Why is it speaking to us like this? What is it? Is it communism? Is it the revolution? Does she want us to know that the revolution is telling us that someday it will return to our side? Or is it something greater that is embodied in the the quest for communism and in the quest for, you know, what is happening when you love someone? when they are by your side, it would be short-sighted. I think this is what's so important about this. It would be short-sighted to interpret this as my lover will come back to me or a lover will come back to me. It's not that it's just love itself. It's just the, the thing that you have lost, the thing that, that has put you into this state of, of, you know, sordid, cynical, adult, divorced amnesia, 
the thing that's got you drinking and you know and living recklessly the lack in your life well i mean the story of disco elysium is of you know noticing that that might be dormant in the way that it has been dormant in our world but there's hope and it seems almost inevitable and it's relentlessly hopeful and that you never know how it's going to happen the next time it happens but it does happen when it comes to PTSD, when it comes to plain old heartbreak, and when it comes to a failed revolution, you find yourself coping in similar ways, reliving the experience over and over and over again, trying to make it work, ignoring it, blocking out the experience, right? But the only way out is directly through, you know? And that's something that, because things are so devastating, in their destruction when you lose it takes a lot of healing a lot of um you know dialectical synthesis a lot of uh looking things directly in the face and understanding to get to the point to process to the point where you can pick up the thing and continue this thing that that felt hopeless that hauntological state that you're in that that yearning sort of for, um, you know, the nostalgia of, 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 of a, a previous possibility that could have happened in history or in your fucking life or in what you wanted to order for dinner tonight or whatever. All of that is constructive. It's ultimately a good thing. It shows you that your soul is oriented toward harmony, but you can't. You know, and you can't ignore that about it. Like, no matter how hard they keep us down and keep you alienated. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, you can die in this game. And you could die in real life. And nothing, uh, you know, necessarily is going to happen <laughs> within your lifetime. It's just, that, it's just that the point of this story is that things tend in a good direction. And that's a weird story because it doesn't have an ending. <laughs> That's why the ending is so dissatisfying, and yet, if you read it this way, it's extremely hopeful. You, you know, you don't get resolution. You don't get closure because, you know, closure is a, a lie. You know, <laughs> it's a a lie they tell you to kind of keep you from being in, you know, conflict and, and engaging in contradictions and stuff like that. It's uh, it's kind of bad. But what art does is it shows us the beauty of the thing that we're experiencing, that at any given time, someone might call the universe or God or love or whatever the fuck or just, you know, the thing. And what this story reflects is just the beauty of the fact that things move in a direction. And you, I mean, from there, you want to make it about you? Do whatever you will with that, you know? That's that's what art is for. It's not it's prescriptive. It's not going to change everything for you, but it is something you can look at. Maybe it inspires you. Maybe you fucking hate it. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I think it's... Uh, 
I think it's kind of embodied in this final thing I'm going to read. So there's a quote that happens in a dialogue tree where your brain is sort of trying to make you become what's called the big communism builder. And I think that it's very telling that the part of your body or the part that your the part of your mind or self or whatever the fuck that's speaking to you in this dialogue is rhetoric, which is you know, the philosopher, right? It's someone making an argument. It's an embodiment of the idea that, um, you know, the only way through your wall of trauma is kind of through, like, it's not around it, it's through it. It's through, it's through um, you know, making that narrative make sense. Not, not, not living in a, a fog where it's all jumbled up, right? What actually happened and where do you go from there? That in the body keeps the score seems to be a way out of this in some level, um, and that in dialectics seems to be a way out of this on some level. So rhetoric says this to you: Yes, you're ready to start building communism again. You've built it before. They've built it before. Hasn't really worked out, but neither has love. Should we just stop building love too? 